From Los Angeles, this is the Adult Swim Podcast, Rick and Morty Companion Edition. I'm Matt Harrigan. We're talking about Rick and Morty number 405, Rattlestar Rick Lactica. We're going to hear from the people who made this episode, starting with director Jacob Hare, along with writer James Siciliano, music composer Ryan Elder, art director James McDermott, lead background designer Robbie Irwin, dialogue editor Nick Raczynski, and character designer Carrie Capella. You'll hear my guests referring to Snakes, which was the working title of this episode. If you haven't watched it yet, you might want to watch it first. Here we go with Rick and Morty number 405, formerly Snakes, now Rattlestar Rick Lactica. My name's Jacob Hare, and I'm an animation director on season four and five of Rick and Morty. I moved out here to work on low-budget indie horror movies and makeup effects back when there was still a DVD market, and you could, you know, kind of survive doing that stuff. I discovered that I... I should have probably started testing for animation a lot earlier. There was a lot of struggling and freelancing before I found out, you know, that you can take a test and get hired to animation. So yeah. uh, since 2006, I've been working in, in animation, uh, started as a storyboard artist, then assistant directing. And then uh, this is the second show that I've directed on. Did you feel like you had to study old shows to come into this? Or do you feel like you just came in with your with a fresh perspective? I was a fan of the show. I had watched all of them. And when I got when I knew that I was coming here to work, I, I kind of really started studying the previous shows because there is canon to this show. It's not just sort of episodic where it resets every week and you do need to know things about the characters. What are some examples of that? You know, making sure that you're you're not overly cartoonish in your rick acting like keeping uh, uh wes reminds us sometimes he's an old man you know he's a crotchety old man he's uh as animators sometimes we get very flourishy at the wrong places and keeping tabs also on uh morty uh it's funny like all of us tend to sometimes draw morty with concerned eyebrows i don't know if it's just the mr bill of him or you know the oh no aspect of his personality but um it, it it's just sort of about seeing what came before and uh and making sure you don't do anything that steps on it or or steps on something crosses a line that's already been established you know let's walk through snakes so jerry hanging the lights the gravity shoes uh it's very hard to do yeah. um and bardell did a great job with the zero gravity is, is bardell hard. the animation company yes uh-huh. um when things move slowly in animation, that equates to more drawings. And uh, typically, when something moves fast, it's less drawings. So it, it, it's counterintuitive to what you would expect, but um, it's hard to do to sell zero gravity. And I think they did a great job. Yeah, and Snakes, I would be curious to ask the writers, actually. I haven't had the chance to. The Ouroboros, I think it's called, the image of the snake eating its own yeah. tail. I would love to know if that was something that they they had in advance or if something they came across like hey we just happened to be writing a time travel story story about snakes yeah. and we came across this perfect image of the paradox of time travel stories where you know the uh, infinity and paradox are summed up in a single image of the snake eating its own tail i thought that was a brilliant way to take a silly episode and kind of weirdly you know put a, put put something at the end that really capped it for me Funny, stupid stuff done really <laughs> intelligently. I I have worked in children's animation and on a couple other sci-fi shows where we're constantly doing time travel stories. I don't love time travel stories. I like when they're silly, like Bill and Ted, but I, I don't love like time travel because you run into the same paradoxes, the same problems every single time. 
And I came to Rick and Morty knowing that they don't do time travel. And instantly, one of my first shows is a time travel story. But the fact that it's Rick just fucking on time travel stories the whole time, I loved. I mean, it just the fact that he's just trash talking it because it's not something that he does. He consistently says he's not a, a time travel guy or, you know, it's, it's something that's always been on the shelf in his garage. But it's something that he doesn't do, hasn't done up until this point. A show featuring mostly snakes what's that like directing something like that well the great thing was that i turned the board artist loose and what they tur- turned back into me was was elevated the material right away so that was that was nice to not have to really go deep in the, the one thing about it was was balancing you know at first the, you have four animators drawing a show and and they could easily become uh you know uh lion king type snakes with a lot of eyebrow expression and a lot of <laughs> but no i think the concept that we got right away and we tacked down and we stuck to was that this is just as if real snakes from the rick and morty world suddenly just had their own world they're not <laughs> really emoting a lot or we didn't want to give them too much whimsic whim, whimsical sort of attributes um it's mostly the broad strokes of what they're doing that uh and and it's so funny but yeah we got audio track of just hisses that yeah. we then had to kind of work off of which was i've never done anything like it i doubt i ever will again yeah well you direct this show like a drama right mm-hmm. i mean it's a drama yeah the that's interesting, what makes it funny yeah the interesting thing was I inherited this episode. Originally, I think Anthony Chun was going to do it, but then a schedule change happened. He went over to Solar Opposites, the other show here, and uh, and I ended up getting this show with the new marching orders that the snakes weren't going to speak. There was a previous draft of this that where the snakes were given dialogue, yeah, and, um, ha- and having that advanced information did help to know what the story kind of was. It's this sort of astronaut's wife tale of this thing went to space and came back, not what it seems. And, and so, but the scenes that they beat by beat wrote in the script really described what the story was. And it didn't take a lot of effort. There wasn't a lot of moments where they were like, just go nuts with this. one. So the dialogue sort of (laughs) choreographed the direction, but then the dialogue went away. Yeah, not entirely. I mean, I didn't, I had I had happened to have read that script, but uh, it, it didn't stay exactly the same either, the, the beats of what happens. But just knowing kind of the intent behind it before going in was helpful for me. But then you get into the uh, the stuff, you know, Kyung-Yi Lim, our, our one uh, who, who was boarding at the time, uh, she she did that snake sex sequence and she had yeah. to reference YouTube videos of snakes having sex. And it, and it came back like as you see it now. I mean – it was it was excellent, and the nuances of of the snake seducing him and and kind of taking <laughs> taking control of him all played so well. It was um, yeah, it, it was a combination of uh, of uh, just the team knocking it out of the park and us getting lucky in some cases. The show is as funny when no one's talking, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's so absurd to um, just see this entire sequence uh, pantomimed with snakes and, and also figuring out all the things of how the, how did the snakes hold coffee mugs? How did their tails, right. you know, at w- we, we knew we were going to have four races of snake and making sure that you didn't have a rattler in there that interfered with any action um, snake casting, so to speak for the scenes. It, it was, um, there was a lot to, to do after we had boarded the broad strokes of it in designing it. You had some uh, adult decisions to. to make about <laughs> snakes. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think that the um the end sequence too where they return home and there's just a battle going on on the lawn was was very challenging. I I tried really hard to color code the storyboard and 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 make suggestions about what snakes can be reused where and stuff but uh, I think all that just landed like like a, a a rock on the design department. They had to deal with it after we after the storyboard. So do you bring your horror movie experience to this job? Absolutely. You do. That's one of the reasons I wanted to work on this show. It has a the the sci-fi horror aspect to it and um yeah i i just i think that you when you go too far and do something insanely grotesque uh they they love that do you look at horror movie directors who do you admire who do you look at i'm a huge fan of Stuart gordon who actually is uh comes from stage plays uh who did like reanimator and stuff like that i love the the raimi stuff sam raimi John Carpenter, all the classics. And then there's, you know, early Peter Jackson even was great for how insane and explosive it was and how cartoonish it was. I, I always liked the cartoonish, splattery sort of horror as uh, I gravitated towards that more than I think it was the animator sensibilities, more than the stuff that took itself too seriously. Trying to come up with the gore sequences with him fighting the reptiles, um, I was. Uh, leaning on some of that early Peter Jackson stuff that, you know, how, how can you kill someone that's not, that's not just stabbing them or simply, you know, how can you, you know, and uh, what comes to mind is the way he uses the cable wrapped around the one uh, in order to sort of strip its body apart. You're always, you're always looking for the next level cartoonish kill gags as they call them in the horror world. And um, I, I think that in snakes too, there's, the the terminator sequence in in snakes um was something that is almost shot for shot from the the doomsday sequence from um from terminator 2 and i don't always love when when shows parody stuff shot for shot but the fact that it's snakes is so next level it's so different from a parody of terminator than anything else i've seen do you put in references that are personal to you in Snake specifically, uh, there was a there was a beat where we overturned the um, on the shelf the time travel stuff on the shelf in Rick's garage when they get attacked. We had it overturned as be, in the sense that time travel's always been on the shelf. We just kind of like thought it would be funny if that got knocked over in this one where we're finally breaching time travel in the episode. That was just like a, a gag that the designers and I threw in there. But uh, yeah, no, I typically don't. Um, I uh <laughs> this is off topic but on, on American Dad one time I designed an entire city street after a city street in my hometown um but the the names of the bars were were parodies of the bars in my hometown but a couple of them came dangerously close to being exactly the names of the bars and i think it went right into the show it got designed and went <laughs> right on tv and it got noticed and i was uh so i i stray away from like putting people i know in shows anymore or trying yeah. any hijinks with like haha i'm gonna laugh at this but nobody else will know what it is yeah. because it's bit me in the ass before there's an immortality to animation <laughs> that you can't hide from. Yeah. I don't know why I just brought that up. It might re revive <laughs> the interest. In Hi, uh, I am James Siciliano. I'm a writer on Rick and Morty for season four and season five as well. 
I went to Syracuse University, came out here right after college. I've been out here for, I don't know, 13 and a half years or something. Uh, did the PA thing uh, for a while. Then I, I wound up at South Park for like seven and a half years. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, they were good to me there. Um, and I worked on the digital team, which is basically like we we promoted the show. We, we ran the website. We wrote books and did really cool video games. Uh, and I got a really cool opportunity to come over uh, through Mike McMahon, who's amazing, uh, who was a showrunner on season four, but uh, a supervising producer on season three. Uh, and he had me come over and gave me a chance to do that writer's assistant job, uh, which was an amazing opportunity and just, you know, was a huge fan of the show before I came here. So, As a writer's assistant, you sit and you listen to all the writers pitch their jokes and decide amongst themselves how it moves forward. Sure. And you probably learn when to open your mouth and when not to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you do. You uh, do. You do, yeah. Uh, you know, it's always better to listen in the beginning, especially get a feel for the room and when is a good time to pitch. Uh, and they're really good and generous in this room. Uh, whenever we got to write alts, like alt, alt jokes, uh, Harmon sometimes will do a pass and he'll put question marks in to try and beat the joke. Uh, they're really good. You could always submit your own stuff. As long as you're doing your work, you could always throw your hat in the ring when, when you're uh, pitching and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, you learn pretty quick uh, when you can... Pitch jokes, throw ideas in. You don't want to step on other writers. Yeah, um, and it's great though. It I got some you, stuff in. Yeah, you got some stuff in as a writer's assistant. Yeah, and I wound up getting to co-write Morty's Mind Blowers for season three, uh, which was a really cool collaborative process. Crazy but exciting. Yeah. Um. So it was a really great opportunity for me and also just in general to learn story structure from Harmon. It's unbelievable how he can break a story down and, and, you know, the process of that was just such an incredible learning experience for me. Uh, and Justin and Dan were both in the room all the time for season three. It was really, it was really great. So here you are in season four. Season four. Yeah. yeah you're uh, a writer now. Writer in season four. Uh, in season five as well. It's crazy. Yeah. Season four is pretty much in the past at this point. Yeah. Almost. Tell us about snakes. Space snakes. Oh, my yes. God. Buckle up. Tell us the genesis of this episode. <laughs> well, uh, the basic idea actually came in season three. This was an idea that we giggled about. We laughed about a lot in season three, which was basically the idea of, you know, what if... Morty got bit by a space snake. Like, what if while changing a tire in space, it was always that specific, while changing a tire in space, Rick told Morty to stay in the car, Morty didn't listen, and he got bit by a space snake. Uh, and we always, I think it was the visualization of a snake. You can't see me, but I'm writhing my hand in, in the air. Uh, the visualization of a snake slithering in space, and, you know, we, we spent an hour or two discussing whether there should be a fang as an attachment outside of a space helmet or whether the fangs came through the space, like the space suit, um, which, you know, wasn't a waste of time. Um, but were, were you happy where, where it landed? Yeah, of course. Yeah. That episode I'm so excited for. 
Uh, so that was the basic idea and we couldn't quite crack it in season three because it was always like okay he gets bit in snake he gets bit in space so what they go back to the planet like does morty become a snake who could you know it was about the who cares of it like well how do we get invested in this story and we we couldn't quite crack it uh and then in season four we were talking about it again and the idea that kind of broke it back open was like what if this snake was the neil armstrong or the Amelia Earhart for the species. Uh, and it was like, what if this was like the first snake that got into space, not just a space snake and Morty killed it. Like how devastating would that be to a society? What if Neil Armstrong never came back? You know, what would that have done to us as a, as a country and as a, as a society, as a world, it would have broken our spirits a little bit. And who knows? I mean, that stuff like that, when you think back on history, it's crazy to say, like, what, what if this went differently? And what if Morty caused that for an entire planet? Wow. Uh, and that was kind of where things just kind of picked up. And it, the excitement really, you know, snowballed after that because we're like, well, it's so dumb. I mean, it, we're, it's, such, it's so dumb that, okay, Morty would maybe steal Rick's ship send a living snake back from earth to just be like, okay, your mission was a success, but then what would happen when an imposter snake came back and, uh, a lot of, of different ways to go. Well, of course, time travel really is the only way to go. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the Genesis and then the, what kind of broke it open for us. We pitched hundreds, thousands of ideas every season, uh, both like, what if this was an idea? And then obviously building off of other ideas, combining ideas. Um, and it's just, it can be, it can be tiring and it can be exhilarating and very funny. And you bank them, some of them? You, you yeah. abandon others? Abandon a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> a lot. You know, there's no, there's no bad ideas, but a lot of ideas get flushed down the toilet. Uh, but yeah, I mean... We try our best to save the best ideas, uh, bank them. I'll put that in quotes. Like a lot of times stuff will just not be able to be broken. Like we'll try to do a story circle for things repeatedly uh, and sometimes they they just don't work out. And, and those ideas can either die or they can just go away, and then next season you're like, "Oh wait, what about this idea? Would that fit here?" Which happens a lot. A lot of people uh, are very interested in the story circle. Sure. So how does how does that apply to the script? Like, if you can you break it down? Oh boy, uh, putting me on the spot. Yeah, I mean, you're cold open, which is that Rick and Morty are in space. Rick says, "Dude, you know, listen to me. Don't go into space." Morty doesn't listen. He gets bit by a space snake. So usually your cold open is the first beat. And then the second beat on an A story is the call to adventure, which is uh, they go to the planet and they see that, oh, man, Morty really destroyed this planet by by what he did, destroyed this planet and not fixing it, which would be like the call to adventure is means that this society will crumble. Uh, then the. So that's your call to adventure. The threshold is the the third beat. That would be Morty deciding to kind of go from order to chaos, which is taking a living snake from Earth and throwing it back onto Snake World. 
And we actually kind of break the format of this show by staying with the snakes, which uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty pretty crazy episode. Yeah. Uh, so we Harmon kept saying we we want wanted people to feel like their TV was broken on this one. Uh, that that we're just like if someone was watching from the other room and they heard snake hissing, they'd be like, "What the fuck are you watching?" Uh, and I think we succeeded. Um, so that's kind of that's definitely a threshold. Uh, usually on our show, thresholds are a big change where we go from order to chaos, uh, or from like you're really like going full into a different world. I'll put that in quotes. Uh, and this is literally going into Snake World. It's both Morty crossing an emotional threshold to fix the problem. Again, in quotes. Uh, I really should stop doing air quotes because nobody can fucking <laughs> see okay. them. Uh, a sound effect. And thank you. Um, preferably a fart. And uh, so Morty crosses that threshold and uh, the snakes are thrown into a different world by the arrival of a a fake snake, an imposter snake. Uh, Road of Trials for that. Basically, I mean, we we kind of stay with Snake World, so it's kind of a weird thing. This this is a really hard one because we break, we go with time cops in this one. I mean, the second act is kind of all over the place. So I, I don't know if this is a good story. Yeah, okay. episode. The, but the circle itself is it's it's very important to all the episodes in one way or another. Oh my god, yeah. We always start there. We always start with the structure. Uh, yeah, and the, I'll just breeze through the the second act because it's basically like the atonement is they go back after we see the Terminator thing. They go back and they see that this is really complicated. Rick and Morty are fighting. And then there's like the, you know, the return threshold, which is usually our big action sequence. Sometimes we call it a duck bill or whatever. It's it's usually the fight and whatnot. And this is them fighting literally through the snake capital uh, and then things just go crazy for the the end with the uh, we call it master of both worlds, but that's just I mean there's so much stuff that happens at this. There's we we go back for snake time travel bits, and we see time cops again, which which sleamy pants and stuff. It's amazing. It's a dense episode. It's a yeah. This is not a story circle uh, breakdown episode, but it's a really cool. Your TV is broken. Uh, kind of episode and we do that that's the funnest thing to do is to take the circle and break it sometimes yeah um so what was the evolution of it after you so you wrote the first draft of the script you bring it to the room yes yeah and first then draft. everybody you beat up on it for a couple weeks yeah uh every script is different but always writers will do the first writer's draft and then usually a few drafts afterwards um so this one uh, wrote the the writer's draft, and then I think maybe two more revisions. Usually, Harmon will uh, will all do a table read, and then Harmon will give feedback based on like what's working, what's not, like what emotional arcs are working, like what are we feeling, how should this change. Then you go back with those notes, you do another pass, uh, and then that can happen over and over again or whatever. Um, I forget how many drafts I did. Uh, I, th- I think I did three before Harmon actually did. He went through and did like a, a Harmon pass uh, before it went to production. Um, so it really is collaborative uh, in in a lot of senses. And, you know, ho- uh, hopefully Harmon can do a little bit ma- of magic at the end there too to, to make it even better. So that's just, that's to launch to production. 
there's there's multiple tiers, which is why things take so long yeah. in animation. It's like we do that first thing, that first draft, which is usually has three, four, five passes on it before yeah. it goes to production. Then our amazing artists always elevate the work, uh, and we we get a thumbnail version, which is like. Uh, looser drawings like animatic is more cleaned up um so we get the thumbnails back and then there's usually a notes pass on that both for art staging etc but also definitely script so we'll do some rewrites based on that and then we'll get the animatics back which is cleaned up uh and then they'll try and do you know we'll do another pass hopefully hopefully it gets less and less and less as you get farther up the pipeline have you seen this episode at completion i actually still have i haven't seen the final final version uh-huh. uh i saw mostly a final version yeah. but i have not seen the final what stands out to you that that your ideas have come to life what what pops oh my god well there's a it's lot to pop. snake jazz i'm excited about uh i haven't heard the final version oh, of snake okay. jazz yet uh, but I'm excited about the idea of it. And I, I did I, see in your script the uh, you spelled out what the snake jazz would sound like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, it's funny because my wife, I, I had, I had told her that I was putting something. I told her I was putting snake jazz in, and she's like, "Well, what does it sound like?" And I hadn't even thought about it at that moment. I just was writing a dumb joke, and I was like, "Well, I guess it's just mostly hi hat," and and uh, and I did it, and uh, that was that was the end of that. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. You never know. Here's music composer Ryan Elder. Snakes. There has two really interesting things about it musically. The first one is there's large chunks of time in the episode where there's no music and the that's very intentional. These scenes where the the audio is literally just snakes hissing for like 8 minutes straight <laughs> is uh was a was a request from Dan. He wa- he wanted this scene to have no music to get in the way nothing to get in the way of these snakes just hissing at each other because the idea of putting a show on television where it's just snakes hissing at each other for eight minutes straight was like really hilarious. And I agree. Um, and it, it, I literally could score it, but it just works so well to not have music and just make it this funny long sequence. It's it's an amazing ambitious accomplishment to, to have all that, storytelling with no dialogue or music and, and music. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, you know, they could really rely on me to help tell that story because of no dialogue, but it's, I totally agree with the decision. I think it's like really, really interesting. Um, and then the other sort of funny thing about that episode is there's a piece of music that is important to the plot. It's only referred to as snake jazz in the, in the animatic. And it's, it's just snake. What would snakes how would snakes make jazz if all they could really do was make snake sounds, right? Uh, so I'm tasked with coming up how to make snake jazz a real style of music, and uh, <laughs> it's you know it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of carefully chosen snake sound effects and manipulating them in in uh, rhythmic and jazzy sort of ways. And one cool thing I can do with that is I can take a sound effect of a snake hiss or a rattle or something 
and I can map it out on my keyboard. So it's almost playable like an instrument. That's how I can give it kind of a, a melody or a jazzy feel, you know? Um, <laughs> so that's and, a tall order. I mean, yeah. how do you, have you had to do something like that before? I have had to use sound effects as an instrument before. Um, nothing ever this absurd. I've had to create beats and grooves out of like, you know, I did a commercial for gateway computers. This was a long time ago when gateway still existed. The premise of the ad was it was all sound effects from a computer that were organized in the form of like a groove or a beat. So it was like the sound of the CD drive opening and like, uh, the, the hard drive spinning and clicking and all sorts of you know, we, I think we used modem sounds cause people still used modems back then. And it was like to create this groove, right? I wasn't limited to just jazz. That one ended up being almost like a hip hop groove, but, uh, it could have been any sort of genre that I wanted, whatever felt natural. It just needed to be cool. Right. This one has to be jazz though. <laughs> cause they refer to it as jazz. So like, um, it, uh, it, you know, what would a sentient planet of snakes play at a jazz club that's what i have to figure out this is carrie kilpella she's a character designer uh yeah i did um a lot of uh, the abraham lincoln death scene with all of the like uh post-civil war snakes in the audience and i did the 80s snakes that are like snorting coke and like riding around in corvettes and with their spiked hair and like punk rocker looks or like super scrunchy hair. Wow. So people who will go back to look at those episodes, what are things that people might want to look for? That might be the most fun to like, where's Waldo? Yeah. Like there's so many little secret hidden snakes through the whole thing. What's uh, your inspiration for some of those snakes? Do you, do you reference stuff directly or do you just do it out of your head? Yeah, there there was like a specific like general Rathbone snake and like Abraham Lincoln snake. And so all of those were like a specific type. And then we like looked up astronauts and like astronaut suits and I don't know, 80s hair. So is that just going on Google and, and yeah. really just it's a lot of Google, Google image search? <laughs> a lot of Pinterest, surprisingly. I didn't think I would be a big Pinterest fan. Really? But there's so many boards on there that are very useful. Like, like, like what? Like, what would be an example of that to somebody listening at, at home? Oh, it's just, like you could search anything in there and whatever you click on kind of goes to another image that's slightly related or is on a board with it. And so it's a good place to like find a database of specific things that you're looking for and to build your own like inspiration boards for it. Yeah. Uh, so we're on there a lot and on Google a lot. It's funny because like during the day we're like Googling animal autopsies and like what uh, gangrene looks like and what it looks like to be like frozen and have hypothermia and like all of these disgusting things tryptophobia uh so like all day on our screens is just like these really vulgar things that i feel like in any other office we'd get in trouble for but here it's just like normal uh my name is james mcdermott and i'm the art director on season four for rick and morty you probably know better than anybody else all the sort of callbacks and references, things that maybe the casual observer might not notice. Um, I mean, you know, we were trying to reference the uh, Mercury uh, astronauts as far as like 
the snake suit and everything for the for the astronaut um for the snake astronaut um and uh hitler's apartment was interesting hitler's apartment <laughs> yeah the, Why? the snake hitler um well, I was just trying to find like where you know the famous speech and trying to figure out exactly like what that looked like and and um and having a deep dive through that just to try to find like the right details for like the bathroom and the inner the inner little uh, smoking room that he has and so those are that's based on actual actual Hitler yeah conditions yeah, yeah and are you the one who goes to find all that yeah well, pulled a ton of reference wow trying to trying to you know i mean it's like it's sort of vaguely looks like it we're obviously doing our own touches on it to make it feel more snake like and everything had to be filled with s's we we couldn't spell anything which was really fucking annoying what do you mean <laughs> meaning like if there's names in the background or like we're really normally you can you know uh um you know sort of telegraph something through storefront name or something if there's something important to say um, or, you know, in whatever fashion in this, um, they wanted no English. It all has had to be S's. So like every single thing that normally would have English on it somewhere in order to help, help tell the story, everything had to be in S's, which was like, like crazy annoying. But in the end, it's really, you know, it worked really well. And, it, and it, the crazy thing is, is like the snakes talk, like, like basically don't talk for eight minutes and you understand what's going on. That was amazing. That's that, amazing. That's what was incredible about this episode. Eight minutes? At least. Wow. I think it was longer before, and then it got cut down. It might it might be less than eight minutes now, but but it was even longer before, and it still played, and it still was intriguing and interesting to watch. It started with dialogue, and that went away. Do you know why? I think because they wanted to see if they could get away with it. And just to see, and then when they played it in the animatic, everyone laughed their head off and they were like, oh my God, we actually understand what they're trying to say or do in the scenes without actually, you know, understanding the language or whatever. So, um, I think it was more like, can we do this? You know, it was, yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, brave enough to ask the question and it, and it worked. This is lead background designer, Robbie Irwin. The Snakes episode was uh, another challenge because we had to not only design a new world, but uh, there was a lot of scale uh, changes within that episode because you have snakes that evolved instead of humans. So the challenge there is trying to make something feel relatable to the viewer, but also feel like for snakes. And <laughs> So like Snake New York City. Yeah, Snake New York City, Snake Pentagon, uh a snake Hitler and snake Germany, and then all the way back and forward to uh, the future where you have like this, the re revisioned or revisited idea of like a futuristic Terminator snake kind of idea. And uh, so it's a combination of all those different eras. And uh, I think initially we started off with like sixties architecture for when they first when we first encounter their world altogether, but I think we kind of swayed away from that, but that was the hardest. That was the hardest challenge for that one. was just getting scale, right? Getting scale. Yeah. Instead yeah. of human snakes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. a weird challenge. Yeah. And figuring out how they might drive. How they, yeah. The how, did you, how did you land on that? I don't recall. Yeah. It, it was, um, the, we went through several versions of the cars that they ride in 
it was kind of um they started off a little too cartoony, but then we got to this this sensibility with it to where it kind of felt um like we could have could relate to that those shapes and it didn't feel too much like a a us trying to imitate that's a weird that's a problem isn't it but like trying to imitate what a, cart, a cartoon snake would what the world would be like so I think in one sequence we had uh, there's like an MIT with a bunch of in the 80s with a bunch of snakes outside break dancing and stuff like that and then there's a uh, um, another sequence where we kind of uh, go into a 7-Eleven type store and there's a lottery ticket stand and all that so you've got to reconsider the physical world and completely re- reinterpret it all together. Like how they would hold a phone, how they would hold a gun. Um, simple things we, we you know take for granted. We have to redesign it to make it feel like it's within their world. And you don't want it to be wacky, cartoony, right? You want it to be serious. Yeah, serious to an extent. Right. Yep. But all, there's a cover balance there too because it has to look it has to look realistic and relatable, but it can't be too too cartoony. It's like you're riding this fine edge in design of being within our world, not too cartoony, but not too realistic at the same time. Because there's a simplicity to the design of Rick and Morty to where if you were to just trace a picture of a laptop or uh, a computer device, then you're, you've taken this too far out. It has to be simplified and made a little ugly, not only to go along with the comedy, but to go along with the design sense of the show. So you sort of... Um, diminish it yeah diminish bit. it characterize it and uh break it down to its like basic core element and then and then go from there here's dialogue editor nick Rachinsky. snakes is my favorite your favorite oh yeah um snakes was cool and i know i said i was a dialogue editor but my favorite part of snakes is the sequence where Morty drops the snake onto the snake planet. She dro- he drops the dead snake out of the, out of the ship. And so the challenge there was instead, instead of dialogue editing, it was okay. We have to build this entire two minute long sequence. That's, you know, it's, it's tropes. It's like Apollo 13 meets, some other space movie meets Armageddon. It's all this meets Indiana Jones. It's there's so much going on and we had to sell it without any dialogue. And we weren't sure if it was going to play, if it was going to be clear. And again, it speaks to the great directing we have in storyboards, but um, Lee, the lead editor and I got together and we sound designed out that entire montage just for temp, like it'll change when it goes to mix, but we wanted everything to be super clear um, for the storyboard artists so that when their boards got brought back in and sunk up to audio and Dan and Justin saw it, they were, they would be like, this works. Like it totally scans. Everyone is going to get what's happening. Like the snake falls, the kids are watching the snake fall out of the sky. The news broadcasts are happening about the snakes. The military is reacting. There's, government press conferences they hijack this professor who's an expert on ancient alien snake language to come in and communicate with this snake Um, so seeing that come together was was awesome 
And then obviously the snake time travel stuff is hilarious. Um, and Jerry's B story in that episode is really beautiful. Subscribe to the Adult Swim podcast in your podcast app, and you'll hear directly from the people behind some of your favorite Adult Swim shows. Send your requests, comments, or criticisms, or whatever, to adultswimpodcast at gmail.com. Hear the sounds of the multiverse with the Rick and Morty soundtrack available now. The album features fan favorites like Get Swifty and Alien Jazz Rap, original scores from composer Ryan Elder, as well as new songs from Clipping and Chad Van Galen. The Rick and Morty soundtrack is on sale on the Sub Pop Mega Mart now, or available on all streaming platforms. Thanks to Jacob, James, Ryan, the other James, Robbie, Nick, and Carrie for chatting with me. Thanks to Dave Bonowitz for editing this and to Christina Loringer for her help. Special thanks to Steve Levy for wrangling all these folks. And thank you for listening.